Well, as we've already said, we're jumping into Second Peter. Uh, I, you know, I love all the Word of God. I love the book of First Peter. Uh, but I will admit to you, I've been looking forward to this lesson because uh, I, I, I love the book of Second Peter. And uh, there's a change in tone that takes place, and, and we'll say a word about that. But I, I've got this little introduction down because I felt like it just summed it up so well as we move into the book of Second Peter. I want you to notice what we have written here. Peter wrote his first letter because he was moved to the depth of his being by the suffering of the people of God. He wrote his second letter because he was moved by the seduction of the people of God. He was moved the first time by what Satan, the old lion, was doing. He was moved the second time by what Satan, the old liar, was doing. When he wrote his first letter, the attack was from without. When he wrote his second letter, the attack was from within, and it was much more serious. We could sum it up this way. The church could not be destroyed by fierce torments, but false teaching could destroy it. Peter's second epistle follows the same pattern as all of the other second epistles of the New Testament. Second Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and 2 John. They all deal with error or apostasy. Differences in style and tone between T- Peter's two epistles doubtless arise from this fact. In his first letter, he had a burden to comfort those believers who were going through the fire. And in his second letter, he had a burden to caution those believers who were playing with fire. His second epistle is full of warning. It is comparable in many ways to the epistle of Jude, and much has been made of that similarity. Probably what had come to full fruit and flower when Jude wrote was only beginning to bloom and blossom when Peter wrote. Peter's second epistle is in three parts. Uh, The first chapter deals with faith's convictions. The second chapter deals with faith's contention. And the third chapter deals with faith's consummation. And so that gives us sort of a little short outline to the book of Second Peter. And I want us to jump right in. We'll read the first four verses of the book of Second Peter and begin as we study this little epistle. Verse number one says this, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through Lust. Now, these first four verses, uh, this is his introduction. He, he, he begins by acknowledging and recognizing who he is and who these people are and what God has done in their life. But really, as we can consider the first half or the first portion of the first chapter of the book of Second Peter, we find three basic thoughts that Peter is going to address. In the verses we have read, he's going to talk about the secret of commencing well. In other words, you've got to have the right beginning. Uh, let me say this, that, uh, that I'm glad our beginning, uh, as a believer, all of us, we began the same way we were born again, by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. That's the only way to begin. I was talking to a young man on Sunday morning about this, and uh, he wants to follow the Lord and believers' baptism. And and uh, so, I, as, as I often do, if we've not led him to the Lord, I sat down to talk to him about his testimony and, uh, what he had been through, and uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know, uh, just as a, a 
human life, and I know that life begins before birth, I believe it begins at conception, but when it begins to function in society, when it begins to sort of interact with the outside world, is at the point of birth. I mean, is there anybody in here that hasn't been born? Okay, right, you understand what I'm saying then, correct? Uh, You've heard before that where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, where there's life, there's been birth, amen? And uh, that's true spiritually speaking as well. And that's what the Lord was teaching to Nicodemus in John chapter number 3. Nicodemus comes and he's got all these great compliments to give the Lord. You know, we know, Rabbi, thou art a teacher sent from God. No man can do the things that thou doest except God be with him. And he had all this good religious talk. Jesus just stops him and says, you know, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he was saying to him was this. That's all good and well, Nicodemus, but here's the main question. Has there ever been a point in time when you have accepted Christ as your Savior and been supernaturally birthed into the family of God. That's the beginning point. And Peter's going to sort of deal with that, and he's going to talk about the secret of continuing well in verses 5 through 9 and the secret of concluding well in verses 10 through 15. But that's sort of the theme of what he's dealing with in these first four verses, how we began, how our spiritual walk began. And he begins first off with a lesson on how to be saved. Uh, he gives his author uh, the, or his signature to us in verse number one. He calls himself Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of of Jesus Christ. And uh, you know that that's no wonder that he that he used that title. But it is interesting that he did because he had pretty much gone by Peter uh, for the years coming up to this. But he wants to remind them that he's a person just like them, that he was a lost sinner just like they were, that one day Christ came by the seashore and uh, called him out of darkness into light. He wants him to understand that he, uh, even though he may be Peter to them, he is in many ways still Simon. He's still that sinner that God saved by his amazing grace. And so he, he gives his name, but he gives a little status there with it and describes who and what he is. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then I want you to notice the audience that he that he gives to us. He says this, To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He speaks first off about Christians and their beliefs, and he calls what they believe like precious faith. In other words, what he's saying is this, that you have the same faith that I have. Now, we need to be very, very careful as we use that language in society today, because uh, faith is, you know, faith is not a, a disdained attribute in society. People don't have a problem with faith. The question is, what is your faith and who is your faith in? We've never had a president that wasn't a person of faith, quote-unquote. Most congressmen will say that they are people of faith. Really, it's no great thing to say you're a person of faith. But Peter is defining what faith they have. And he's saying you have like precious faith. Your faith is like my faith. And our faith, and you could go down through the annals of, of, of Scripture, and you could say this, that our faith is like Abraham's faith. Our faith is like David's faith. It is a like precious faith. Why is that? It's precious because of the object in which it is placed. Notice what he says. He says, like precious faith with us, how? Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying that though you may be far away, though you may be in a far distant land, We are knit together through our relationship with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and His 
righteousness. Because it is faith in Him, it is valuable faith. It is precious faith. You know, we exercise faith every single day of our lives. Uh, you know, when you got in your car and went to turn the key, that was an exercise in faith. When you walked in this building, you, you're having faith both in the, the architect and the constructor of this building. We exercise faith all the time. Faith is a common thing. But what made their faith precious faith? Well, who it was placed in. It was placed in Jesus Christ. And because He is precious, because He is valuable, because He is far above any sort of value that this world could ever purchase or ever afford, the faith that we place in Him is a precious thing as well. He speaks about Christians and their beliefs. And in verse number 2, he speaks about Christians and their blessings. He says, grace and peace. By the way, this was a common greeting. Grace spoke uh, to the Gentiles in the group, and peace spoke to the uh, to the Jews in the group. In fact, today, Orthodox Jews still oftentimes use that greeting. They'll say, shalom. And uh, that literally means peace. Well, that's similar to what Peter is doing here. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, notice this, this is very important, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I understand that there is something seeming seemingly commonplace in his greeting there. It's got all the marks and characteristics of a typical apostolic, you know, epistolatory greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you and so on. But it's interesting that of all the ways that grace and peace could enter their life, of all the ways in which they could tap into and experience the wonders of this grace and peace, Peter points to their knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is of supreme importance, and here's why. Because as he travels throughout this epistle, he's going to reveal to them the dangerous heresies that are infiltrating them as a body of believers. He's going to talk about false prophets, and he's going to talk about false teachings, and he's going to talk about all these different things, and he's going to rebuke those that that don't abide according to Scripture. But before any of it, he wants them to understand that their enjoyment and their experience of the grace and peace of God is in direct correlation to how much they know God and Jesus. It's not knowing about Him. And I think it's good when we know about Him. But it's not knowing about Him. It's knowing Him. That's where we find the peace and the grace that we so desperately need. And then he talks about Christians and their behavior. He mentions a great gift that has been given to us. He said, according to His divine Power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Isn't that interesting? He says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things. All things. Now, I know he's going to say that pertain unto life and godliness. We'll get to that in a moment. But suffice it to say that what Peter is saying here, he's saying we know God, we know Jesus Christ, and we know him according to the measure of grace he has bestowed in the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. According to his divine power, he is revealing the person of Jesus Christ unto us. And what has he given us for that task? He's giving us all things that we could ever need. Let me say that as a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you know, John told uh, that little group of believers that was on the very brink of being ensnared by Gnosticism in in the first century, he said, you have no need that any man teach you. Now, we understand there's a context to that. You wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here if we didn't believe in the teaching of the Word of God. But what he is saying is this, that you have, through the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, the capacity to, to comprehend and to apprehend all revealed spiritual truth. He's given you everything you need to do that. In other words, we don't need a priest to impart spiritual truth 
to us. We don't need uh, 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 an ecclesiastical hierarchy to somehow let us in on the secret of divine revelation. Now, God may use people in our life to illustrate and to relate things to us, but all those things are here for us in the Word of God. If we'll only read and believe and obey. He speaks of the great gift, but he speaks of a great goal. He's given us all these things, what? That pertain unto life and godliness. In other words, what the reason God has given us all these things is so that we can live life and life more abundant. And so that we can live like God would have us to do. Live according to his standards that he would expect out of our life. Given us everything for life and godliness. You know, we live in a world today where people, uh, we've, we've gotten used to blaming everything on our circumstances. I don't know when this happened, but I, I remembered when I was, you know, like a, I don't know, six, seven years old or something like that in the mid-90s. I know that, you know, makes some of you all feel old, but, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting around daytime, you'd see, you know, daytime TV, and they'd have, you know, Sally or Geraldo or whatever, or Monte, you know, somebody would be on, and there'd be someone on there weeping and a wailing and a boohooing, they had seven bodies in their freezer, and it was Mama's fault, right? You remember that? They had Their life was in pieces, and it wasn't their fault. It was always someone else's fault. I know people like that even in this day, people that no matter what happens, doesn't matter what mess they make of their life, it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. We're raising a generation of people with that attitude, with that mentality. And, you know, there's even amongst Christian people, there, there's sometimes a tendency to say, well, you know, I... I I would live for God, but. I would live for God, but. Well, but what? You see, God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God hasn't shortchanged any of us in spiritual tools and strength that we need to live for Him. I know it may seem like some folks have it easier than others. We preached a little about that on Sunday night uh, in John 21. But I know it may seem like some folks have it easier than others, but there's not a single one of us that God has asked anything of us but what we by His grace and strength can do and can accomplish and can do it the right way. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He speaks about how to be saved and what it means to be saved. But then at the end of verse number 3, he says a word about how to be sure. And I... You know, I, 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 I want to be careful with how I address and how I handle this, but he says this, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue. He speaks of that wonderful person that is key and central to our salvation. He's given us all these things that pertain unto life and godliness. How has he given them to us? Through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how. The greater we know Him, the greater we'll be able to live the Christian life. The less we know Him, the more of a struggle it'll be to live the Christian life. It, listen, you can go to church 365 days a year. You can give every penny that you uh, that, that you have in your wallet or your purse to, to missions or to local church. You, you, can, you can do everything that you choose to do and would try to do, and you'll be a complete failure if you don't get along with God and get to know Him. That's vital. This thing is a relationship thing. It's not a rules thing. It's a relationship thing. Now, every relationship has rules. But, uh, you, listen, you don't... You don't have the relationship for the rules. You have the rules for the relationship. Am I right? Let me say, I don't know if you really grasp that. We don't, we don't have the relationship just because we need more rules in our life. 
We have the rules in our life because they facilitate the relationship. Let me tell you something. I didn't get married because I was just lacking responsibility. You know? I didn't sit around going, man, I just I got too much money, I got too much free time, I gotta do something about this. No. But now when you get married, sometimes there's you know, your money becomes our money, right? <laughs> your time becomes our time. And that's part of that shared life, that bliss that marriage is. But the reason you do that is because it facilitates the relationship that you have. This thing is not about rules, it's about relationships. For every relationship, there are rules. But how silly would it be to follow the rules when there's no relationship there? How silly, how foolish would it be? What if I was sitting around hanging out with the guys and we're, you know, it's getting late in the evening and I say, boys, well, I guess I need to go home. I don't have a wife at home, but if I did, she'd want me there. Right? Doesn't make any sense. That makes about as much sense as Christians that are trying to live the Christian life without having the right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the relationship is the preeminent thing. He speaks about that wonderful person, but he speaks about those wonderful promises whereby uh, we can uh, partake in that divine nature. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, many great and wonderful promises are made unto us. Let me say that there are promises that stem from, from the very things that he said. But I think the, the greater application of this verse is this. As we have been justified and placed within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans says that we have been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So in other words, all the things that are coming to Him are coming to me. That also means that all the promises that God has made to Him, in a sense, He has also made unto me. As I have been placed within Him, I now have this relationship with God, and all those promises are now given into my life. Now, what's the purpose of them? He speaks about how to be sure, but he speaks about how to be sanctified. He says this in the remainder of that verse number 4. He says that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He speaks first off about the great essential to being sanctified. He says partakers of the divine nature. That's how. Uh, these promises are given unto us that we might uh, appropriate these promises, that we might uh, believe them and act in faith according to those promises in our life. And by the way, those promises are so much bigger than a, than a new job or a new car or a new set of clothes. I know that's what the TV preachers are hung up on. Maybe that's why that's all they've got <laughs> is new cars and new houses and new wardrobe. Let me say this. I, I'd rather have Jesus than to have all those things. And I don't count the promises of God a small thing. The promises that He'd never leave us or forsake us, the promises that He would uphold us uh, by the power of His hand and His strength, through these promises, as we exercise faith in these promises, we then see the life of Christ lived through us, and we are made partakers of that divine nature. The phrase partaker carries the idea with it of someone almost like sharing a meal would be. Almost like sharing a meal partaking of the same thing, tasting of the same thing. And just as Christ, uh, though He was 100% God, He was also 100% man. Amen? And can I tell you this? He's still 100% God, but He's also still 100% man. 
the man Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is still the man Christ Jesus, just as he is still God and God's precious Son. And in the same way, though he is 100% man, the, the human side of him, in pure submission to what God would choose to do and what God's will is for his life, the same is true for me and you, that though we are human, as we surrender to the will of God in our life and as we obey and believe and trust the promises of God, the divine aspect of our lives that is uh, perpetuate, excuse me, perpetuated by the new man and his relationship and his interactions with God and God's Spirit, that divine nature is lived throughout our lives. He speaks about the great essential, but then he speaks about the great escape. I, every time I see that, I think about Steve McQueen. Somebody say amen to that. But he says this, uh, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's interesting when he says that word corruption, it's the same word Paul uses to talk about the corruption of a corpse. It has the idea of destruction by corruption, something merely just rotting from the inside out. He says, you know, that's a, that's the situation we were in. We were in, I mean, listen, a, a dead body, the best thing that you can do for a dead body is preserve it. It ain't going to get no better than preserving it, right? Once that person dies, we understand that one day God will raise us incorruptible, but the purpose of the funeral home is not to try to bring him back to life, amen? Their job, the best they can do is try to preserve him and paint him up and keep things from getting worse until they can get that body, that corpse, into the ground. You know why? Because the forces of corruption are pulling at the very fibers and at the very molecules of that corpse and of that body. You know, that, that was the condition we were in before God saved us. Things weren't going to get any better. We might have got a new job. We might have got, listen, we might have gotten a better marriage or a better relationship. We might have got a nicer house. We may, uh, you know, we, we may have, uh, tried to straighten ourselves up, clean ourselves up, but it wasn't going to get any better. The end of the day, the forces of corruption from our sin sickness were going to continue to eat away at us. So he speaks about how to be saved. He, he begins by talking about our like precious faith, and he, he ends at the end of verse number four talking about how we've escaped from the world. But then he says a word about the secret of continuing well. Let's look at these verses. Verse number five, he says this, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. So he's just got through talking about bringing us up to speed, I guess you could say. He's writing to these people, he's saying, you've got like precious faith, you've been made a partaker of the divine nature, look where you used to be in the corruption of the world, but here's where you are now, you're saved, you've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness, now here's what you need to do with it. You know, that's a fair question, isn't it? Here we are, now what do we do? Here we are, now what do we do? Well, he speaks about the path to diligence, and he, and he talks, he used some addition, some mathematics here, because he says this in verse number 5, says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. I think that's interesting before we even get into this list. He says, beside this. Now, it's going to sound really dumb. Okay, you ready? <laughs> but you know what beside this means? Beside this. <laughs> but what it has, the, what it carries the idea of 
is you have a primary, an original element, an original thought, an original idea, whatever it is, and then without diminishing that first thing, you merely lay along beside it for equal observation these other things. You say, why is that important, preacher? Well, here's, here's why. Because faith is not just a beginning point. Our entire life is a life of faith. And Peter's not saying, oh, faith is for those baby Christians, and you'll work your way up. What he's saying is this, you have begun with this light, precious faith. He said, now here's some things that go with that faith, that accompany that faith. Here are some things that complement that faith. Here is a matching set of divine qualities that God would love to see in your life. And we've got a little list of them, and I won't say a lot about each of them. But I, I do want to read this list. He says this. Look at verse number 5. He says, add to your faith virtue. And we might say it this way. We're to not only believe, but we're to also behave. Virtue means patent godliness. That's what it means. It means good works. When uh, Peter, the same words used when Peter was talking to Cornelius, and he said that Jesus went about everywhere doing good. And at the very basic, uh, you know, most fundamental, I mean, listen, at the risk of sounding elementary or oversimplifying it, virtue means living right and doing right. And what he is saying is this, it's good that you believe, but your belief doesn't mean much if it doesn't change the way you behave. It doesn't mean anything. James said it this way, faith without works is dead. He didn't say that faith can't exist without works. He just said that faith without works is dead. It's pointless. It's useless. There's nothing there. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. So we're to not only believe, but we're to also behave. Look what he says next. He says this, and to virtue, knowledge. We're to not only have integrity, but we're also to be informed. In other words, now here's where a lot of people miss it, okay? <laughs> I don't mean this in an ugly way, but this is the truth. I know a lot of people that they say, well, preacher, I believe in God, and I try to be a good person. And then usually what comes after that is, but I just don't have time to go to church. But I just don't have time to read my Bible. But I just don't have time to, to study the Word of God. Uh, preacher, you know, I, I try to be a good person, and, and I know I believe in God, but that's about it. What does Peter say? He says, listen, that's good that you have integrity. That's good that you have virtue. That's important. Your faith wouldn't mean much if it didn't affect the way that you live. But it's not just enough to live right and do right. You need to know why you're living right and why you're doing right. You're to have knowledge. Knowledge is just basic raw information. Now, we know what wisdom is. Wisdom is the, the divine uh, quality of being able to apply knowledge in any given situation. But I'll tell you right now, part of the reason we do this ministry and I'm not fussing. Is everybody in this room, I mean, you come to this and you love the Bible and that's why you're here. So I, I'm not, I'm talking about them people that don't come. Amen? So don't tell them I said this about them. But there is a famine of knowledge of the Word of God. It would astound you how many people have lived and been in church and sat in Sunday school and church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they don't know anything about the Bible. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be unkind to those people. I'm not trying to be rude to those people. But I'm just trying to say that's not the will of God. The will of God is that we have knowledge of, the, of God and knowledge of His Son and knowledge of His Word that we grow. And everybody, we ought, listen, do you know more now about God and His Word than you did a year ago? 
five years ago, ten years ago, whatever it might be. You ought to be adding to that integrity information. Then he says this in verse number six, says we're not only to be taught, but we're also to be tempered. He says into knowledge, temperance. Temperance just literally means self-control. That's what it means, self-control. And what he's saying is this, all right, that's good. You have faith and you have virtue, you, you believe in God, you're living right, and now you know the Word of God and you understand the Word of God. And he's saying this, now you need to have some self-control. Not only about the way that, because I know some people that they learn a little something about the Bible and then all of a sudden their spirit just goes right down the tube because they, they, they turn around and start being ugly towards people. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying. I think what he is saying is this, that it's good to know it, but you then have to apply it. Every verse in this King James Bible has teeth on it. And it should grip our lives and it should change us and it should affect us. There's a lot of people that have a head knowledge of the Word of God. But you know what James calls it? He calls it the engrafted Word. What does that mean to be engrafted? That idea of engrafting. And I'm not, listen, I'm not a farmer. I, I, I got out and tilled the garden a little bit today, but I'm, I'm not a farmer. And uh, but probably ain't nothing going to grow anyway, amen. But uh, I have studied a little bit and understand this idea of grafting, where you, uh, you know, take a, an offshoot or a cutting from, from something else. And Paul describes this analogy to us in the book of Romans, uh, I believe chapter number uh, 11 it is, and I might be wrong about that chapter, but when he talks about the wild olive branch. And, and you have to cut and open up that plant and then place... This, this external, this alien element within this plant. And then that plant will then assimilate that new growth within it and it will change the way that plant grows and what that plant grows. That's the engrafted word. As the word of God cuts us sharper than a two-edged sword, cuts us open, lays our life bare, and then the Spirit of God uh, implants and applies the word of God in our life. And it's an alien thing to us. It's a foreign thing. It's not how we would live if we were to do it our way, but we, through faith and obedience, allow it to affect our lives and take root in our lives. And you know what it'll do? It'll change the way we grow, and it'll change what we grow. He's saying we have to apply the Word of God. We have to have some self-control. We have to be temperate. He says not only are we to be in possession of ourselves, but he says we're also to have patience. Look at the next phrase. He says, and to temperance, patience. And to temperance, patience. You know, <laughs> he's saying not only should you bring your life and body and attitude and, and mind and tongue and so on, we could go under subjection. He says, but after you have yourself under control, then you need to give God and God's Word time to work. You know, it's tough. It's tough sometimes. We, we want to obey God and then expect everything in our lives immediately overnight to change and get better. We're guilty of that sometimes. I'm guilty of that sometimes, you know. Uh, God, you told me to do this and I did it, so you better do something now. <laughs> But no, the reality is, you know, a lot of times it, it may, it, we've been living a certain way for a lot of years. We've had habits for a lot of years. We, we spent a lot of time sinning. And it might take more than a day or two to break some of those habits. It might take, but listen, it, we, we've had this tongue unbridled for, for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, how many years? It might take a little more than one trip to the altar to get her, to get her brought down into subjection. When you have that self-control, add to it patience. 
give God and His Word time to work in your life. Most people, they want to go down to an altar. Okay, Lord, I'll give this over to you. But if it don't change by tomorrow, I'm going to give up again. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. How silly would that be? I mentioned that garden. Let me tell you something. And I, we're, we're, I've not even put anything in the ground yet. We're just tilling a little bit. But, but when we when we go to plant, I know Dad, he, he got his garden out yesterday. How silly would it have been for Dad to get up this morning, walk down to the, to the garden and, and, and expect fruit to be there and get mad when it wasn't there? No. No, he planted those things, and that's going to take time. There's elements that have to be in place. There, there, there's a time element that must take place. We have to add to our temperance patience. And then not only are we to be patiently good, but we're to be patently godly. Look what he says. He says to patience, godliness. Godliness. In other words, when we do wait, we ought to, in that waiting, try to become more like Christ and more like God. We ought to allow the, the waiting period to produce in us a God-like and a Christ-like change. You know, a lot of times, the way we view things in life, the way we view waiting and patience, we view it merely as an arduous task that God asks of us just because He enjoys watching us wait. But did you know that God could do anything He wants to do at any time He wants to do it? And do you know that if it's God's will for you to wait, He has just as much in the waiting for you, as He ever does in whatever you're waiting on. God is accomplishing something in our lives. And so, while we're waiting, in the midst of that, we ought to learn to wait like Christ waited. Boy, don't you know, and, and He, uh, listen, He, I understand He did not have a sin nature. And there are mysteries about the incarnation that I don't think we'll ever grasp on this side of eternity. You know what I think? I think one of these days we're going to wake up and our vile body is going to be made like unto His glorious body and we're going to go, oh, that's what it was like. Amen? But until then, we're going, to, we're going to struggle. But you know, the Bible says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. I'm sure there was times it was hard for Christ to wait. But you know what he said? They came and they tried to rescue him from the, the group that was coming to, to, to uh, capture him and to to arrest him. And he said, you know, right now, I mean, I've got 12 legions of angels. Right now. I could just call God. I, one of those angels was enough to destroy the armies of Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire. He said, man, I could, listen, if I wanted to, I could unravel creation at one word. But he said, no, put away your sword, Peter. For this hour came I into the world. Patience, patience, godliness. And then he says this in verse 7, we're to not only be holy, but we're also to be helpful. He says, into godliness, brotherly kindness. In other words, don't forget in your pursuit of godliness that God loves sinners and God loves saints. In your pursuit of godliness, don't ever lose sight of the fact that for God so loved the world. He loves those that are unlovely. He loves those that do not want to be loved. And in the midst of all of it, don't ever, don't ever miss just pure, plain, old-fashioned kindness, brotherly kindness. I, I've got this feeling that, and I don't know, I don't want to say something that that God hasn't said, but in, as we look at the rank of things that are a priority to God, you know, I think kindness is pretty high up there. 
kindness. I know a lot of folks, they just struggle with kindness. Being kind to people, being gentle with people, being good to people. Listen, you can have faith, you can have virtue, you can have knowledge, you can have temperance, you can have patience, you can even have godliness. But if you're not kind, something is missing. It says not only are we to be holy, but we're to be helpful. And finally, it says we're not only to be liberal. Now, that word liberal, that doesn't mean progressive liberal. What he's saying is in kindness to those around us. Not only are we to be liberal, but we're also to be loving and lovable. We're to have charity. So in other words, that kindness is to be just the surface of a much deeper love that we have for those around us. It's tough to love people sometimes. I'm tough to love sometimes. I tell people all the time that, I, you know, I'm glad my wife loves me because I don't think anybody else would. Now, that's just the honest truth. Now, you see me at church, and I'm hard enough to love just at church, but you all see me the way I am most of the time, amen? But she loves me, and she cares about me, and I think all the time, you know, there's nobody to put up with me like she does. Nobody loves me the way that that she does. And uh, there's that deep abiding love that she has for me, and the kindness that you see uh, is, is just an outgrowth of that love that she has for me. Uh, deep down, and, and I hope and like to believe that it's the same way from me towards her. But suffice it to say this, that the end of all these things is to love one another. That that kindness should not be put on, it shouldn't be fake, but it should be birthed out of a deep, real, scriptural love that we have for those around us. You say, but preacher, some folks ain't easy to love. Well, that didn't stop God from loving you and me. We weren't very lovable. But listen, Calvary wasn't just a, a kindness or, or, or a politeness or a courtesy. Calvary was the expression of God's deep, abiding love for humanity. By the same token, every smile, every kind look, every kind word, every miracle performed, every, every lesson taught in the life of Christ was not just the fulfilling of a ministry, but it was the expression of a deep, abiding love that He had for this world. The same should be true of us as well. Uh, He speaks in these few verses about the the path to to diligence that we are to have. And he talks about a faithful addition, but then he talks about the fruitful abundance in verse number 8. It says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. This is interesting. He's just got through telling us that these things come from a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But now he's telling us that a knowledge of Jesus Christ comes from these things. That's an interesting exchange, isn't it? You know what the idea is? The idea is this. As we have known the Lord Jesus Christ, but what does the Bible say? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. By the grace of God and in response to the teaching of the Word of God, faith has been birthed into our hearts and in our lives. And then as we have begun with that faith and we are equipped with all things that pertain unto life and godliness, that because we know Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us, and through that Spirit and through the promises of the Word of God, we can then beside this, beside this precious faith, we can add virtue and temperance and patience and godliness and and brotherly kindness and charity and so on and so forth. So we have begun with a knowledge of Jesus Christ, but if we are to have a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ, then that is the pathway to having it. When are we going to learn? This, I hope you understand what I'm about to say. When are we going to learn that this is a life thing? This isn't a Sunday thing. This isn't a Wednesday thing. This is a life thing. 
I mean, this is all day, every day, 24-7. This is a life thing. God has taken up residence in our hearts and in our lives. And if we're doing something, if we're not living this life, then we're missing the whole thing. He speaks about the path to diligence, but then he talks about the path of delusion. He says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He talks about a believer who's lost sight of his of his condition. He's blind. He's blind. He's blind. In other words, the people that don't have these things, they don't realize they don't have these things. Or if they do, they don't think these things are necessary in their life. Boy, that's that's a lot to swallow. You know why? Because you and I, we could be sitting here and not have these things in our life and think we do. They're blind. They cannot see afar off. That's interesting, that phrase, cannot see afar off. We, we get our word myopic from it. You know what it literally means? Short-sighted. Short-sighted. Can't see the long view of things. Let me tell you, it would do us good just every now and then to take a good long view of our life and ask ourselves some questions that are hard questions. Ask ourselves things like this. Am I really living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I really living how the Bible tells me to live? Do I have virtue? Do, Do I have knowledge? Do I know more of the Word of God than I than I did a year or two years ago? See, we get short-sighted. And we see no further than the tips of our nose. And we don't take the long view of our life. Let me tell you, if I, if I was to look at my life and start to see some patterns developing, that might be a good indication that some of these things are missing. If I, for instance, if I was, if I was retrodden and replowing the same sins over and over and over again, struggling with the same things that I was struggling ten years ago with, might be time to look and see if we've been adding these things to our faith. If I've got, listen, if, if I'm having the same problems with folks that I've been having for ten, fifteen years, might be time to look at my life. If I'm, listen, if I'm still struggling with prayer today like I did 10, 15 years ago, and I'm not saying we ever have all these things figured out, but I'm saying this, there is a long view that we should look at our lives and not always be short-sighted. Because it is possible to be blinded to these deficiencies in our life and be missing them and not even know that we're missing them. He talks about the believer who's lost sight of his condition, but he talks about the believer who's lost sight of his conversion. He says this, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Well, that's interesting. Is he saying to us that the believer actually can't remember that he was saved? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this. They're forgetting what it took for them to be saved. They're forgetting how big of a thing it was when God saved them. They're forgetting what a large price that God paid when he paid their sin debt. In other words, when we quit trying, when we quit trying, we've lost an appreciation of Calvary. In other words, I, and I want to put this in the right spectrum because I don't want to. I don't want to seem like I'm just fussing and harping. But let me say this: when the Word of God doesn't mean much to us anymore, it means we've forgotten that the written word and the and the living word are synonymous in nature. When when the prayer closet, listen, when the prayer closet doesn't mean anything to us anymore, and we quit entering into the prayer closet, and we quit praying to God, it means that we've forgotten that it's it's in Jesus Christ and through His blood that we have access into the holiest. When we listen, oh, when we don't have time for church, and listen, you're here on a Monday night when you don't have to be here, so I'm not fussing. You know that 
But when folks lose sight and they when when church isn't a priority, they've forgotten that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. They've forgotten those things. That never happened to me. Hey, it's happened to better than you or me. It can happen to any of us. Then he talks about the secret of concluding well. Look at verse number 10. He says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an inheritance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there's basically two, two portions here. And this first portion... Uh, deals with Peter's exhortation. And notice the nature of his exhortation. He says in verse number 10, the first part, he says, number, number one, be sure. Be sure that you're saved. A lot of people <laughs> have tried to make this verse a lot of things that it isn't. A lot of people have tried to look at it and say, well, he's not talking about salvation. Yeah, he is. He sure is talking about salvation. A lot of people have tried to say, well, you know, he, he's not he's not saying what he's saying and so on and so forth. Can I tell you exactly what he's saying? When he talks about calling and election, uh, he's not speaking to those strictly in the realm and scope of, of public ministry. He's talking to believers. And the, and the only thing we know for sure in his congregation that he's talking to is believers. I don't think we need to be afraid of the terminology calling and election. Can I tell you why? Because everybody that's saved has been called. No man comes unto, unto me except my Father draw him. I was called, and if you're saved, you were called. You say, well, preacher, what about those that aren't saved? Well, they were called too. Many are called, few are chosen. That doesn't mean that they uh, they wanted to be saved and God wouldn't save them. What it means is God called and they didn't answer. They chose not to answer. Now, I don't have any problem with that. I don't struggle with that. Then he says election. What does it mean to be elect? I, I think a, a good way, <laughs> this is going to make some folks nervous, but I, I want to explain it just right. I think a good way we can understand that word elect is to put an S on the front and talk about select. Now, when we talk about select, we're not saying God has selected us. But, you know, when we think of something that is select, we are thinking of something that is a prime choice. Something that is of another category. Something that is of the highest virtue and quality. And when he talks about those that are elect, he's not saying, hey, I, I, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and here's another group of folks, and I didn't choose them, so they're going to die and go to hell, and, you know, that's tough, but that's the way it is. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's saying those that are saved are part of a special group. Now, we believe that, don't we? I mean, listen, if, if, if it's not a special thing to be saved, what are we doing here? If it's not a choice thing to be saved, what are we doing here? I'll tell you, it was choice to me because I made my choice. And I don't regret it. I don't think we need to struggle. Listen, I believe man has a free will. And I believe that free will is is untrampled on by God. But just because I believe man has a free will, and man makes a choice, and God does not predetermine that choice, but man makes it of his own volition. And I believe all those things. That doesn't mean that we're not called. 
It doesn't mean that we're not an elect group of people. It doesn't mean God's not sovereign. It doesn't mean that God didn't foreknow some things. In fact, I tell you this, God foreknows all things. God knows exactly who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. You know who doesn't know? Us. And people make their own choices. And God allows man to do this. Has it ever occurred to you that it is an exercise in the sovereignty of God for Him to allow man to make a choice? But He does allow man to make a choice. And so when Peter talks about this, I've heard lots of people, because that word calling and election, that scares people. They think if they, you know, that if, if Peter said what he really said, then Peter was a Cal, no, Peter wasn't a Calvinist. Uh, because no, no, because the Holy Ghost isn't a Calvinist. Somebody say amen to that. No, man has a choice. But he is talking about your salvation. Because he's not talking about the call into the ministry, and he's not talking exclusively to, to Jews or, or in the context of the Jewish people as God's elect. He's talking to believers. And he says this, you're to make that calling and election sure. There's a lot of things you can be wrong about. But, you, but if you're going to, I believe I get it nailed down that I know for sure that I have answered God's call, that I have trusted in Jesus Christ, that I have believed on Him, that I have been saved by God's amazing grace. There's a lot of things you can be wrong about, but please don't be wrong about that. Peter says, make sure. Now, why did he say that? Because he'd just been talking about a group of people that that uh, that that were blind and nearsighted, short-sighted. And he's saying to those that I'm writing to, examine yourself. Paul said the same thing, to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Look at your life. We don't ever need to be afraid of that. Listen, if you're afraid, if you're afraid to think back on that day when you got saved, I believe I'd get alone with the King James Bible and with the Holy Ghost and get that thing nailed down. Because it ought not be something you look back in fear on. If you've got questions, listen, you don't have to have questions. If you've got questions, get with somebody who'll take a Bible and show you the Word of God and get it nailed down. Make it sure. Make it established. Make it settled. He says this, he talks about be sure, but he says be more than just sure. He says this, I like this, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying this, if you, if you get it nailed down, and then if you do these things, when you die and die in the Lord, you won't have to stand ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. An entrance will be made unto you abundantly in His presence. One of these days we're going to give an account, and we need never lose sight of that. He, he uh, gives us the nature of His exhortation. He gives us the need for His exhortation in verse number 12. He says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. He basically says this, this is good for you, and I'm going to keep telling you this. It's interesting that when he talks about putting them in remembrance, uh, it, it comes from word, and I can never remember and keep all these words sorted out, but, but it comes from the same word that we get our word amnesia from. And uh, it's a very similar word. And uh, basically what he's saying is this, I want to jog your memory of these things. I want to jog your memory of these things. Uh, he calls it present truth. My preacher used to preach on that all the time. He talked about present truth. You know what present truth is? That's truth that's to be believed and applied right now. Right now. Not not someday, not another day, right now. 
And he describes this as present truth. And then we notice his example. I'm not going to say a lot about this. I, I want to get to this last few verses. But he says this in verse number 13. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Let me just say this. You know, Peter was the only man in the New Testament church that didn't have a blessed hope. You ever think about that? He was the only man in the New Testament church that didn't have the blessed hope. He knew he was going to die before the Lord would return. The Lord had promised him that. The Lord had made that known to him. And so as he approaches death, the fires of Nero are burning hotter and hotter. He is one of the chief apostles. He knows he's not going to escape very long. And so he knows he doesn't have much time left. and There's not a lot he can do. But you know what he can do? He can put pen to paper and he can remind him about these things. Can I just say this about that before we jump into this last portion? Can I just say this? We don't know how much time we have left. So we ought to be diligent with it. Be diligent with it. You know, the, the, the secret to concluding well, there's a lot of things, but one of them is this, just to realize that we are concluding this. Things are coming to a close. Time will not stretch on forever. Peter says, I don't have much time, so I want to be busy. And we don't know how much time we have, so we need to get busy doing the things of God. He begins uh, in, in verse number 1 of chapter 1, and, and uh, he's basically talking about our walk with God. But there is a change in uh, content here, and I want us to look at it very quickly before we close. He says a few things about the Word of God. He's been talking about our walk with God, but he says a few things about the Word of God. And I want you to notice these things. He says this in verse number 16. He says a word about its integrity. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now, again, remember, he's laying a foundation because he's going to deal with heresy later on in the book. And... Uh, let me say that I know a lot of people, I know a lot of uh, theological justice warriors that spend all their time combating heresy. And I think that's important. I think there's a place for that. I think we need to call out and expose and rebuke bad doctrine. I don't think we need to be afraid to do that. But here is the reason why we do that. The reason why we do that, the reason we expose bad doctrine is because we have good doctrine. And I don't mean as as a pastor or as Walridge or as a Baptist. I mean the Word of God is good doctrine. We don't listen. We don't need the Gospel of of Judas. We have the Word of God. We don't need all these fanciful texts. And every few years, a new one's of the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, or you know whatever. A new one comes out all the time. Uh, the next latest and greatest, and some New York Times bestseller going to show us how you know Jesus was actually Mexican or something. All this nonsense. Let me tell you something, we don't need that. You know why? Because we've not followed cunningly devised fables. There is integrity to the Word of God. And Peter is going to show uh, how we know that. And uh, notice what he says. He speaks about its integrity, but he speaks about its instruction. He says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did he say that? He's saying, we have told you, and by the way, that word perusio, it's, it's the idea of a revelation, and very likely what he is talking about when he says the power and coming of our Lord Jesus is he is uh, talking about Christ's second coming. He's saying, we've told you about these things. We've told you this was coming. And we've not followed cunningly devised fables, and here's how we know that. He speaks of the heavenly vision that they had. He says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about? 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And what he is saying is this. Jesus is coming in glory. And we know that's true because we were on the Mount of Transfiguration and we've already seen a little bit of His glory that is to come. James and John and Peter saw something that no human eye uh, has ever yet seen in the way that they saw it. There upon the Mount of Transfiguration, I mean, they saw Him not just as man, but they saw Him as God. And there upon the mountain, the Bible says, the effulgence of His glory began to, began to shine forth. His, his uh, clothes began to glow white. And his face began to glow. There He stood talking with Moses and Elijah about His, his coming death. And uh, it, it was such a sight that Peter, in his excitement, Peter, Peter, you know, he, he was like a puppy dog. He'd get excited. He just didn't know what he was doing in, you know. And he gets excited and he says, Let's make three tabernacles here. One for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you, Lord. He says, we saw him on the mountain. We have, we are eyewitnesses of this. Has it ever dawned on you that what we're reading is an eyewitness account? An eyewitness account. This is not a story of a story of a story of a story. But we have in our very hands here the story, probably Peter gave that to Mark and Mark relayed it in his gospel. We, we can read it and, and, and yeah, you can find all through the, the various gospels, you can find eyewitness testimonies to the life and ministry and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have eyewitness accounts. He speaks about the heavenly vision. He said, hey, don't tell me Jesus isn't glorious. I saw His glory. Don't tell me Jesus isn't coming back in glory. I've already seen him in glory. I'm an eyewitness. But then he speaks about the heavenly or the heraldic voice that he heard. So Peter says this. He says, all right, let's build three tabernacles here. It's going to be great. And boom, all of a sudden the voice of God speaks forth and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, and Peter does not relay this to us here, uh, but the gospel writers tell us that uh, when he said that, he said, hear ye him. Hear him. So in other words, what Peter is saying is this. We've told you he's the Son of God. But that's not second-hand knowledge. We know he's the Son of God. We heard God himself say, this is my Son. We're not just surmising it, nor are we even taking Christ's testimony just at face value. We could but we don't even have to do that. God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son. He speaks about its instruction, but then he speaks about its incomparability. He says in, in verse number 18, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. Verse 19, We have also a more. Now, I don't know if you underline in your Bible, but if you do, underline the word more. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Next time somebody tells you they had a vision, and, and I'm not critical, I mean, I, I, listen, it, 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 whatever you think happened to you, that is your business, amen? And I'm not going to limit what God might do. Now, I would say this, anybody that tells me they saw Jesus, I know scripturally that is untrue. Because the Bible says that he was seen last of all of Paul, Okay? But people say, well, I heard a voice, or I saw a vision, or I this or that. And, and if God, God may do, I'm not going to limit what God's going to do. 
But understand that we have a more sure word of prophecy. You see, the fact is, if your vision is scriptural, then we don't need your vision, and neither did you. And if it's not scriptural, then it don't matter anyway. Amen? We have a more sure word of prophecy, and that's the word of God. I'm not waiting around for God to give me a vision, because I've got something better than a vision. We talked a little bit about it on a... On, on Sunday morning, you know, I mean, I, God doesn't speak to me audibly. Instead, He does something better. He gives me His Word, and He gives me His Spirit. There's been plenty of times that somebody said something to me, and I've heard them wrong. Amen? Peter's saying, we heard the voice, but we've got something better than the voice. We, we heard Him. We were on the mountain. But we've got something better than being on the mountain. We have the Word of God. He says, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Study that. Study that verse. Because it speaks of the illumination of the Word of God. The illumination of the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God, it is effectual in our lives. It illuminates us. It makes known unto us. It reveals things unto us. It shines like a star in the darkness of this world. We, uh, oh man, I wish I had a lot more time to deal with that. But I want to say this in closing. Look at the next two verses. He speaks about its inspiration. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, I want to say two things about this. One, I understand that in this crowd, probably everybody in this room, I I, I believe and I hope, believes in the inspiration of the Word of God. So I don't have to spend a lot of time hammering it. But I do want to to expound on what he means when he says no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. There's a few conflicting views about what that means. Some people believe what it's saying is is that, you know, nobody has a right to study and, and learn the Word of God privately. Well, that's nonsense, because the Bible commands us to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Some people say, well... What that means is is that the Word of God has only one meaning. And let me say this, that I believe there is a truth to that. The Word of God is the Word of God. It's not what I think the Word of God is. It is the Word of God. And it means something. But I don't think that's what Peter is saying. Given the context of the next verse, here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, no prophecy of the Scripture. All these testimonies from Genesis to Revelation, these are not just man's opinion. It's not what these are. It's not like God spoke to them and then they jotted down what they thought about it. See, that's how some people believe. In fact, that's what most commentators and most liberal theologians, that's what they believe we have. We don't actually have the Word of God. We just have men's words about God's Word, you know. And they'll sit there and they'll try to skin it all to pieces and pick it apart and try to, you know, let me tell you, the one thing they don't take for granted, they'll take for granted that, that, uh, you know, the Red Sea was just a bunch of reeds. They'll take for granted that Jonah is just an allegory. They'll take for granted that Daniel was written later. You know the one thing they won't take for granted? That God wrote this book. <laughs> That's one thing they won't take for granted. See, if you believe God wrote this book, it sorts everything else out. You know? And what he's saying is this. These aren't men's opinions. No prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. That's not what you've got. You've not got men's ideas about God. He says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They spoke, but they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What a beautiful picture and explanation of what inspiration is. God did not superimpose, God did not supersede their personalities, their culture, their language, their their, their, their turns of phrase. He used those men as they were and, and in who they were. But all the while, it was the Holy Ghost leading and directing. It's interesting when it says that as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know where else that's found? Whenever uh, Paul is uh, the shipwreck, Luke is recording the shipwreck of Paul, and it says that uh, that uh, they came to a place and, and the ship couldn't bear up, so he says we just let her drive. You remember that? We let her drive. And the wind bore them along. It's the same word that Peter uses here. And the idea is this. The ship didn't cease to be a ship. The sails didn't cease to be sails. And the sailors didn't cease to be sailors. But all the while, despite their greatest efforts, it was the wind determining which direction the ship went. The wind was in control. The wind may have used the sails, but it wasn't the sails in control. It was the wind in control. And that's what the Bible teaches us about the inspiration of the Word of God. God used these men, there's no doubt. And so you can see their personalities and you can see uh, some of their characteristics. But it's not the sails, it was the wind driving. The sails are just what the wind used to drive the ship. It was the Spirit of God. It wasn't their personalities. The Spirit of God used their personality, but it was the Spirit of God making every single word in this King James Bible exactly what it needs to be.